1: So a big Federal Reserve decision, a rate hike, but I have never seen so much debate over a Federal Reserve decision which involves such few changes to the monetary policy stance and even the projections. Let's bring in Jane Foley from London, Rabobank head of FX strategy. Jane, what was your takeaway on a hugely debated Federal Reserve decision which really generated very little change at all?
2: Well, that's exactly right. But I think what the market really is uh, debating about right now is is what's going to happen say, in the tail end of 2019. What's going to happen in 2020? I think that's where the largest amount of uncertainty is concerned. I mean, already surveys are suggesting that the UK or the US, rather, could go into a recession in 2020. Um, therefore, there's still, I think, a, a lot of uncertainty about what would happen perhaps in the second half of, of 2019. So we sort of know what the, the Fed is, is, has projected to do in, in the say, the next uh, uh, 12 months. But beyond that, I, I think there's a lot of uncertainty, uh, uncertainty, and I think that's really where the crux of the
1: debate is. And Jane what often comes with the Federal Reserve decision is the summary of economic projections and as you point out that's where we get the forecasts from each and every individual Federal Reserve official who plot where they think rates should be or will be over the coming years. We have a pretty good idea of where the President of the United States would put his dot plot um, on this specific dot shard. Um, Jane for you though it's quite interesting looking out to 2019 looking out to 2020 we see a pretty spread out view of rates and a pretty big range as well. What do you make of that? I don't see the bunching that maybe we've seen in decisions and forecasts gone by.
2: Well, I think all year we've had this debate about you know, bond yields and what are they telling us? Of the, the, the curve earlier in the year was flattening. The market got quite upset about the, uh, the possibility of that that was uh, uh, showing a, a slowdown. We know, of course, right now that the U.S. is benefiting, of course, from the the, the um, expansionary impact of, of fiscal uh, uh, loosening, the, the tax cuts. But we also know that uh, as we move forward in this cycle particularly when you take account of the progressive interest rate hikes that we've had from from the fed that that will run out of steam hence you get the talk about recession in 2020 now talking about recession in 2020 when the the u.s and same in the second has just posted growth of 4.2 percent seems quite difficult to reconcile and yet uh, that's the, the path that we may be on and and therefore um you know it, it is Very difficult, I think, for economists to find a a real consensus in that time frame. And and that is where I think all the uncertainty uh, regarding the the, the treasuries and also the US dollar, the the trend of the US dollar into the tail end of of next year, that really lie.
1: Jane, stay with me. I'm very pleased to say that my co-anchor, is making an appearance in New York City. Good morning to you, Tom King. Oh, good
0: morning, John. Got through the traffic in time and was stopped on Fifth How, how bad is
1: it in Manhattan?
0: I, it's, I, you know, I actually think last year was worse, but it is, it is worse than normal. I would say. Is like John, John Tucker with us as well. John, coming from New Jersey, I mean, people literally plan what an hour ahead to well, get to the city. Well, you also have to take the into normal?
2: account that the, you know, they're doing construction
3: on the helix. The
0: helix as well. John, the helix is a—it's like the Eiffel Tower. It's sort of a, a, yeah, an it's, act it's of right metal a construction. Something, something so tells landmark.
1: me you're not being serious at all. Oh, no, we would not it's just be serious.
0: Guess. Jane Foley with us with RoboBank. Jane, I want to know what RoboBank economists see in terms of economic growth. Whether the United States or Europe, there seems to me to be an inordinate mystery about what economic growth is going to be.
2: Well, I think certainly there has been... Well, last year some good news, better than expected news. But I, I think with respect to looking in the future, the uncertainty stems from the trade data and, and the, the trade wars. And I think if if we look at what surveys are saying, so for instance, this morning we had confidence survey from the Eurozone disappointing, there can be a, a bit of a mismatch between what some of the data is doing, which is okay, which in, in many cases is, is, is pretty firm, with the confidence numbers. And the confidence numbers are of course looking forward. They are trying to, to work through the impact of 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 trade wars, and yet that hasn't come to fruition too much in the economic data. However, we also know that in in the economic data, there's probably been some front loading. Uh, Certainly that's gonna be the case in in trade data. If we look at China, for instance, we've had better uh, August IP, better August uh, retail uh, sales possibly for front loading but our concern is that as we go forward we will begin to see these costs of the trade wars
0: what let's go through the 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 pairs what's your yen call right now out one year uh, we've seen some big figure calls for weaker yen do you agree
2: Yes, now this is, uh, we, we do agree. And, and this is largely because we, we are still of the view that the dollar can climb further. Um, the dollar, with the interest rate story, with the growth story being good in the US, still seems to be sucking in um, capital outflows from emerging markets. Now, although emerging markets have been firm in recent weeks, we don't think that that story is over. And, and that is because of, um, again, the China story. We think the China story is only really beginning, and we will see uh, worse data. There's already quite a lot of bad data from China if you look, yeah. if you just scratch below the surface. So uh, we we do think that the dollar will remain firm.
1: So, Jane, help me understand something, because there's a lot of listeners out there that are looking to pivot. And what is involved with that pivot is increasing international exposure, moving away from the United States, taking down your risk there just a little bit and increasing exposure elsewhere. Do you suggest people do that through EM or through Europe right now?
2: No, we're, we're still very cautious on EM. And, and again, this is because we don't think that we're seeing, or we think that perhaps investors have been lulled into a false sense of security with respect to some of the data that I've just mentioned, for instance, the Chinese August data. We do think that this is going to come through. In fact, you know, it's really quite interesting. You know, there are stories right now that there have been, um, China has been unofficially restricting um, imports, commodities imports from places like Australia. And this is to to, to they're slowing down the customs approvals because demand for raw materials and industrial products, has taken a hit in China. So all of this is likely to come through. This will be bad news for uh, EM um, and probably good news for the dollar, given the interest rate differential that continues to support the dollar.
1: Jane Foley, always great to get your insight following a Federal Reserve decision. Jane Foley, the rubber bank head of FX Strategy...
0: John, uh, I know you were you were reading your Horace Walpole, 1761, where he spoke about lame duck at the London Stock Exchange. And then, John, it migrates over to January 14th, 1863, yep. in the heart of the Civil War, where in the Congressional Globe, they talk about lame ducks. Libby Cantrell of PIMCO has studied this very, very carefully. Libby did
1: the same thing, I'm sure. Yes, so of
0: did? course. Lame duck. I mean, there it is, and it could be upon us in November. What is the import of that to our listeners this time around?
4: I think the the, the most relevant uh, issue that may be addressed in the lame duck is um, is potentially a, a consideration of NAFTA or HAFTA uh, given that it doesn't look like the Canada is going to be able to come to the deal um, so just from a from a procedural perspective um, a, a deal needs to be finalized by in the next few days in order for it to be considered by before the end of this of this congress um, and so if there is a Mexican bilateral deal without Canada I think that's going to be the big issue in front of in front of Congress.
0: No, let's rip up the script. And we, we, we saw this literally in the last 48 hours. Uh, I mean, the president wouldn't even speak with Mr. Trudeau of Canada uh, at, the, at the festivities in New York. We've reached a new level of seriousness in this NAFTA debate.
4: Uh, absolutely. I, I mean, I, I, I've, uh, I've, I've I've thought that the market's been a little bit sanguine about um, the sort of idea that they could come to a resolution so quickly. I mean, these are these big meaty issues between Canada and the US, uh, things that have been relevant when we were negotiating TPP with them, dairy subsidies, dispute resolution, auto tariffs. Um, these are not things that can be, I don't think, reconciled in a matter of days and I think that's what you're seeing right now. Um, so I, I think the big, the big question is here is will members of Congress act Actually, ratify it bilateral with Mexico. I'm, you know, I'm skeptical.
0: Are they? We had the Ford president and chief executive officer, Mr. Hackett, at our Bloomberg Forum yesterday, and I'm not sure if it came up, but X percent of any given automobile, like an F-150 pickup truck, has a Mexican or Windsor, Ontario component to it. Do they understand that in your world, Libby? <laughs>
4: Um, Yeah, so I mean, obviously the supply chain is incredibly integrated with, especially with Mexico, but also with Canada. And I think that's why um, folks in Congress have been so concerned about both NAFTA potential NAFTA withdrawal and the auto tariffs, um, just given how sort of integrated we are with with especially our, our neighbors to the north and the south. I you know I, th- I think they do understand it, um, but obviously this is politics ruling economics right now. Uh,
0: well, well, let's go back to the lame duck theme then as well. You know, let, let's assume we get a Democrat House and. I know David Wasserman was writing it up yesterday in the Cook Political Report, and there's a huge doubt of it. I get the uncertainty, folks, and we heard (laughs) that from you earlier. But nevertheless, does it just stall through the lame duck, or are there just a few chosen pieces of legislation that maybe get addressed within the uproar?
4: Yeah, and I think it's only I think it's all going to uh, be predicated on on the outcome of the election. I think if you see um, a big Democratic sweep, I mean, of course, Democrats aren't going to be very um, willing to go along with anything in a lame duck session if they are looking at much you know, bigger majorities in, in the normal congressional se- session. With that said, I think Republicans will have a, a new urgency to get things done, including potentially this bilateral with Mexico and potentially a confirmation of of Kavanaugh, depending on on how that goes.
1: Libby, if we've learned anything um, from politics over the last couple of years, it's to make sure we question the consensus before the vote actually takes place. There seems to be an overwhelming consensus that the House swings towards the Democrats now. I still listen to the the message coming from the Democrats and struggle to really understand what it is. Um, What is the message to the electorate that comes from the Democrats?
4: Well, I think that the, the prevailing message here is, and even though they, they may not want it to be, but I think it's an anti-Trump message, right? This is a, I think that they are running on, interestingly, on sort of a, providing a, a check and balance to to the executive branch. And that's been a um, something that they've all emphasized. Um, so I think that has been a, a major theme. Now, they, they would say that they're running on on infrastructure, they're running on healthcare, um, but but certainly providing a check to the executive branch is either implicit. Or explicitly part of their their message.
0: Libby, thank you so much. Libby Cantrell with us here. Really, the day's wearing on uh, towards uh, the election. Uh, Really, I thought, really, in the last 48 hours, a whole new tone of the poll analysis and the study uh, as well.
1: very pleased to say that dropping by the studio is Peter Chatwell, Mazuo International Head of Rate Strategy here in London. Peter, great to catch up with you. Let's pick up with that economic data yeah. here in Europe. An upside surprise on inflation. Mm. These sentiment numbers don't look great though, and I'm trying to reconcile what's going on in Europe because I'm getting a lot of conflicting signals. What do you see?
5: Well, you've got the, the classic issue for the euro area is that uh, we get into trouble if inflation surprises to the upside, particularly if it gets above uh, the ECB's target, which it currently is has been for a couple of months and is likely to continue to be the case because then it's their single mandate they're likely to be looking erring towards tighter monetary policy than they've previously been signalling yeah and that's whilst the growth backdrop's not looking so great you know it's decelerating somewhat it's, it's certainly not um, looking looking dangerous
1: to the downside but uh, it's not that strong can you reconcile data dependence with forward guidance the reason i ask this is because we do have an upside surprise on inflation in germany regardless of what happens with growth and inflation President Draghi's tied the hands of the whole governing council until the back end of next year on rates. So can they truly be data dependent when the whole governing council essentially has their hands tied on rates for potentially 18 months? Yeah, um, so I would think that there is some risk
5: that we start to see some evidence that the governing council may be frayed somewhat about that level of commitment. Uh, particularly when they're saying that rates can't go up until the end of summer, perhaps the debate about the real timing of that comes back onto the table. Uh, if that just means a, a rate hike as early as September 19, then possibly they need to be hiking rates in larger steps to uh, to this, contain.
0: No, I don't mean to interrupt, but what you just said, Peter, is absolutely critical. John, this is a huge deal. This measured discipline we're on versus what we used to do in Fed in Fed movement.
1: It's a big change, Peter.
5: Yeah, look, this is a, a new regime, um, but I think what what we're currently going through is a repricing of European rate expectations, quite rightly, and I think that's going to be exacerbated as the market comes to consider who the next DCB president may be. If they are just a more neutral um, outlook than, than Draghi and also the chief economist Peter Pratt have had, then they could well be looking at a significantly tighter path of monetary policy for late
1: next year. Depending on how long the European cycle runs for, I mean, we've got a problem. Let's just assume that the US economists are right, and we might get a downturn in the United States in 2020. Mm -hmm. Where does that leave Europe? How long is the cycle? How much runway does the ECB actually have to try and get rates back above zero again? ECB, we think, has got until 2021
5: to get rates up. Is that enough time? Uh, it's enough time to probably get them up to um, into positive. About half a percent would be our, the highest
1: we're we think gonna, the deposit we're rate we get to. are going to 50 basis points in Europe to play with in the next economic downturn. That's your base case. Oh,
5: no, we think they could go negative again. It's been extremely successful now that the banks have have learned how to deal with it. So I'm thinking that there's there's 90 basis points of tightening at most, 90 basis points of easing again. But let's think about what happens to liquidity in the euro area. It has to be more money printing. I think that's that's the less palatable outcome here that uh, then that possibly the ECB needs to be putting rates up quick more quickly so that they uh, don't have to do as much QE and balance sheet expansion as they have done in this cycle.
1: They've got a big problem, Peter.
5: Well, we call it a liquidity trap. We think that's that's a, a fair um, description of the of the problem that the euro yeah. area has. Um, it's likely to be exacerbated once we get some positive views on the risk-free assets, uh, then the currency now, appreciation story really accelerates.
0: Peter, one of the themes that we've had is this idea of dollarization. It's a new word for something timeless, which is just U.S. dollars floating around the world. How does that play into where we go with rates next year?
5: Well, it, yes, I buy the concept. Um... The Fed's tightening uh, is effectively meaning that if you look at uh, a monetary area like the euro, um, they're they're getting easier financial conditions as a result of the Fed's tightening. Um, So it means that where the Fed leads, other central banks are likely to have to follow. Um, So with the Fed creating, if they continue to generate expectations that the dollar can go higher, that Fed funds can go higher, then it will also impact the pricing of of, uh, European rate expectations.
0: But John Farrell, with your trip to London, with your entourage and with your acclaim, with your many media properties, what have you learned about dollarization in the foreign exchange capital of the world?
1: It's a big, big question. I agree. It's increasingly, I think that debate is intensifying. You meant over Um, the
0: dollar, not your media properties. Not my media properties. We
1: can talk about that offline if you like. Um, But it's a debate that's intensifying, Peter. And it's a debate sort of around what happens. What's the reaction function, the bias of investors towards specific assets during adverse scenarios? Now, typically, Mm -hmm. that would be by the dollar. Typically, it would be go to where the liquidity is, buy treasuries. Um, Does that change in the next economic downturn? Because there's a real conversation emerging about that. Well, I think,
5: firstly, with the level of dollar strength that we've got already, we're on the cusp. We've seen some turmoil in EM. So if we get another bout of dollar strength, I think that it could could automatically cap the dollar to a degree because it will mean that broader financial conditions actually get tighter uh, and it could slow down the Fed's easing, possibly put them on pause. But I think also because President Trump is doing some interesting measures, um, some controversial measures, we could have more efforts from European policymakers to gain some uh, monetary independence. Um, You know, think about it. You travel around uh, various countries in Europe. You're actually typically paying
1: for your expenses through American financial systems. Very true. Swift all of these systems, in fact, Swift going through Europe as well. Mm. These are big, big issues, Peter, and they're yeah. big, big issues connected to economic sanctions as, as well. Peter Chatwell, Mizuo, international head of European rate strategists. Great to catch up with thank you. you. Thank, very thank much.
0: you. If you are interested in rent or buy, or housing, or real estate. This is the interview of the day. Every economist worth their salt on Wall Street acclaims fame with a certain focused narrow niche when they start out. Nobody did it on housing like Michelle Meyer of Bank of America Merrill Lynch, now running all of their U.S. economics, and long ago, far away... Uh, You just one day said, I'm going to own housing, and you nailed it. You nailed the ups and downs of our housing, and your new research note is really abrupt. This is as good as it gets. Why is this the peak? Well, I
6: think it's the peak for existing home sales, which was an important distinction. distinctions, not necessarily the peak for housing starts, single-family housing starts. The reason I think existing home sales have peaked is that affordability has been yeah. coming down and there is a pretty tight correlation in the growth rate of affordability with that and existing Two home sales. Two vectors there,
0: house price and also the mortgage rate, which Precisely. is more important.
6: Precisely. And even though affordability is still high relative to historical standards, it's it, it's been shifting down and it should continue to shift down if we think rates are heading up, which seems the most likely scenario
0: the distinction is existing homes exist and new homes are only for the rich because contractors (laughs) construction building land dynamics mean only big fancy houses with granite marble and you know you know a a grill out back the price of a normal kitchen they're the only ones getting built is that stereotype true?
6: Well, that was true in the early stages of the recovery. That's where developers focused to the expensive properties, the ones where people can get financing, et cetera. But now what you're seeing is a move down towards entry-level properties to more affordable type units. And frankly, that's where they should be building. That's where we need more supply. And that's where there's opportunity. So I think what builders are doing, and the reason I think new home sales have further upside is builders are being selective. They're adding homes to areas where there's tight inventory and there is incremental demand. Give
0: us some names of cities that are like that where there's tight inventory, where there's a healthy housing economy. I assume New York's not on that list. Yeah,
6: so cities is going to be a problem. Urban areas okay. are more saturated. That's where a lot of development came in. Multifamily, mm-hmm. the rent story was very strong there. Mm-hmm. It's more in the surrounding areas of some of these big cities. I think still the West Coast is where you have a pretty healthy economy. The tech industry is helping right. to support. So you are seeing a lot of focus in, 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 in well, some of those markets. The
0: heart of the matter, We. I think of Doug Duncan at, at Fannie Mae other others that are specialists in housing economics, is about income growth. Now Chairman mm. Paul yesterday noted this mystery over wage growth and a lot of articles recently on the benefit contribution to wages. Yep. Other than the elite, the upper X percent that are looking at 6,000 square feet, three wood-burning fireplaces <laughs> and all that, where's the wage growth to drive this forward?
6: So wage growth has been slow, which is a challenge, of course, and um, that can further create some challenges around affordability because if home prices are rising at 6-7% nationally like we saw last year, mortgage rates are up, but wages are only increasing 25 to 3%, you start to create some challenges in terms of the ability to access housing. Um, but nonetheless, you have to consider uh, the alternative rents have increased as well. So at the end of the day, you need a place to live. So it comes to being a choice. Are we going to buy? Are we going to rent? And how do we balance our budget to get there? Let's
0: go there. Michelle Meyer with us, Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, and we're going to focus here. We'll do a little bit of Fed chat here in a bit, but right now on her real expertise of housing as well. Rent or buy, go to it. Which is it? And don't tell me New York City, which is the weirdest market. Oh, New York City
6: is an an outlier. Um, I mean, it's
0: basically Europe, right?
6: (laughs) (laughs) Well, New York City has support from foreign investors. Um, People buy properties simply for investment purposes. Um, And New York City is softening. That is very clear in the statistics that are, have been coming out for the past year, both in terms of rent and in terms of of home prices, given the amount. Okay, of what about Wichita
0: or um, uh, Memphis? Yeah.
6: So if you look more broadly and you think rent versus own, um, the uh, equation has started to shift um, in the towards towards renting again, given that home prices have increased pretty notably and mortgage rates are now uh, rising as well. Um, rents picked up post-crisis but um outside of the big cities it's been fairly modest gains if you look at for example Mm -hmm. the owner's equivalent rent series within the cpi if you take out some of those big metro areas it's still fairly modest so um i think if you're just looking at a relative price story in outside the big cities yeah rent is still pretty
0: attractive let's go to the fed yesterday and what i noticed and i've mentioned this like eight times this morning and we're efforting michael mckee we'll see if we can get him in here uh, just off the airplane from Washington. Mm. But Craig Torres had a terrific uh, question to the chairman on dynamics. And then McKee was rude and asked about the dots. <laughs> and then Benjamin Applebaum of the New York Times nailed it yeah. off of those two questions yes, on dynamics as well. And the dynamics were, to me, it was almost a chairman walking away from the PhDs at the Fed and saying we're slaves to data dependency. Mm-hmm. Did you is that, you, that I, your interpretation?
6: Yeah, I, I think increasingly he's saying he does not have stars in his eyes. He is not focused as much on this idea. It's sort our of the star.
0: gospel of Ethan Harris as we know it, right?
6: <laughs> <laughs> um, so to me, the message is: Look, we like. Models to provide a framework uh, trying to understand where our star is a useful exercise, but is not the only way of, of, of Determining monetary policy and if we tie ourselves too much to our forecast to our dots to these long-run equilibrium Models right. we can end up getting it wrong. So let's look at incoming data Let's look at how financial conditions are going the message to me from Powell is we're gonna keep plugging along Provide the data lets us um, because we don't know what the end goal is
0: but now With a short term Fed funds target rate adjusted for inflation that's zero or even slightly positive, was yesterday the day we got back to normal where these rate increases have actual impact on the economy, as President Trump would suggest? Well,
6: it's possible. um, If you believe the Lubbock Williams short term R Star model, oh, you're killing me. Excuse me. (laughs) Can we have the surveillance gone there? Well, that's you know that's in theory where we are. But it was, Kevin's
0: like, online too. Kevin Warsh is online too, saying, "Michelle, what are you talking about?" <laughs> Kevin Warsh, the former governor, critical of our star. Of our star,
6: sure. But, you know, look, it's are, are we at the point where monetary policy is going to start to matter for financial conditions and bleed into the broader economy? Maybe. So far, it hasn't, and I and, and I think that there's still a question as to the mechanism for which the Fed is is, is impacting the economy. So. We'll we'll see, and I think that I think Powell isn't sure either, which is why right. he's emphasizing. Look at the data flow. Look at financial conditions. We're going to calibrate as we go.
0: Within this is to look back, and I had this in the TV script this morning, that Economic Club of New York speech by Vice Chairman Stanley Fisher of mm-hmm. ultra accommodative. Mm-hmm. Where we clearly removed ourselves mm-hmm. looking at two year yield from that. Mm-hmm. You have no clue where neutrality is, Chairman Powell has no. Where mm-hmm. neutrality is, then why do we worry? Why do we attempt a mathematical exercise involving what, four plug ins?
6: So I think the idea is that we're supposed to understand the relationship between growth, inflation, and rates. That do goes we? back to the Taylor rule, goes back to all of these variety of different models. Um, do we. It's not obvious, but we can look at historical relationships and we have some basis mm-hmm. for understanding. So the idea is that history matters. Those relationships are somewhat relevant. Right. Let's look at them and determine what it means for today, understanding that we have to be mm-hmm. able to take some error around that.
0: Pim from Midtown emails in and says, Michelle, great comments on rent or buy. How much further will home prices go down in New York City? <laughs>
6: um, you know, that is, I is, we're not forecasting specifically by by city, so.
0: Excuse me, by zip code. <laughs> How about voting district? <laughs>
6: um, you know, to me, you just look, around, look at the imbalance. There's so much supply coming in in New York City. Um, to me, it's gonna be a function of what happens to the broader business cycle. If a recession comes in the next few years, given the excesses in the city in terms of supply, I think we're vulnerable for declines.
0: We're now welcome online to Pim Fox, who's just joined us here. She was brilliant on New York is South. I was listening, yes, indeed. Souther.
5: Souther. Souther, interesting. I I just got to say that even though we talk about the actual transaction value of a lot of properties, I don't see it getting less expensive. I see it getting more expensive. Every time- I hear this
0: from every homeowner, every so single I, I mean, homeowner. I
5: appreciate it. And it's also, you know, Key. one a transaction, you know, they're limited, right? Because there's a limited supply of buyers. Yeah. Well, Ooh, something
0: or- to talk about in the next hour. Pim Fox with us in studio. Michelle Meyer, Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. Thank you so much. A clinic on housing. now at Bloomberg Surveillance Worldwide and coast-to-coast coast with 14 out of 12 cable news networks tuned into what will occur here at 10 a.m. is most important uh, issues on Judge Kavanaugh, and we will attempt at Bloomberg Surveillance to commit perspective. We do that with Bob Moon. And Bob, it goes really back within your research to October 14th of 1991 mm-hmm. when Anita Hill had to pass a lie detector test. And I think that picks up your wonderful perspective you've put together.
7: Yeah, you know, Tom, Shakespeare said uh, what is past is prologue. So with the Senate Judiciary Committee set to uh, gavel to order its high drama hearing into uh, the sexual misconduct allegations against Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh, it is informative to look back 27 years to October 1991. That's when President George H.W. Bush's Supreme Court nominee Clarence Thomas was called back in his confirmation process to face the sexual misconduct allegations of Anita Hill, his former assistant. The panel's chairman at the time was Democrat Joe Biden of Delaware.
6: This is not a referendum on whether or not, whether or not sexual harassment is a grave offense. I said from the beginning, this is about whether or not sexual harassment occurred. Now we're gonna hear more witnesses are gonna come in and cooperate your position and hers. We'll find out whether they're telling the truth or not as best as we are capable of doing. Just like you as a judge are
7: when you look them in the eye and make a judgment. Senator, I think this whole affair is sick. I think it's sick too. Utah Republican Orrin Hatch was one of Thomas's defenders in those hearings, just as he's defending Brett Kavanaugh as a member of the same Senate panel today. Just as the Clarence Thomas hearing was then, today's hearing is being called a watershed moment. A record 257 women are running for the House and Senate in the 2018 midterm elections. In 1992, 28 women were elected to the House of Representatives and four to the Senate, among them Democrat Patty Murray, the state of Washington's first female U.S. senator.
8: I am a United States senator today because of the way Anita Hill was treated in 1991. They called Anita Hill a liar. They said she was coached by special interest groups. They looked for ways to blame her, impugn her, and attack her.
7: They pressed the young professor for explicit details of the harassment she said she had faced on the job.
8: My working relationship became even more strained when Judge Thomas began to use work situations to discuss sex. On these occasions, he would call me into his office for reports on education issues and projects, or he might suggest that because of the time pressures of his schedule, we go to lunch to a government cafeteria. After a brief discussion of work, he would turn the conversation to a discussion of sexual matters. His conversations were very vivid. Because I was extremely uncomfortable talking about sex with him at all, and particularly in such a graphic way, I told him that I did not want to talk about these subjects.
7: What happened after Hill's opening statement explains why this time Republicans on the Judiciary Committee have named an outside counsel who they can choose to have questioned Dr. Christine Blasey Ford. In 1991, Hill was a lone woman facing a panel of 14 skeptical men. Among them, Pennsylvania Republican Arlen Specter. A mere allegation.
8: Senator, I would suggest to you that for me these are more than mere allegations. These are the truth to me. These comments are the truth to me.
3: I, I'm not I'm not questioning uh, your statement when I use the word allegation. I know about sexual harassment and discrimination against women, and I think I have some sensitivity on it. How reliable is your testimony in... October of 1991 on events that occurred eight, ten years ago. How sure
7: can you expect this committee to be on the accuracy of your statements? And it wasn't just Republicans who raised the eyebrows and even the ire of many women watching the hearings. She could be living in a fantasy world. I don't know.
3: We're just trying to get to the bottom of all of these facts.
7: Howell Heflin was a Democrat from Alabama.
3: In trying to determine Whether you are telling falsehoods or not, I've got to determine what your motivation might be. Are you a scorned woman? Do you have a militant attitude relative to the area of civil rights?
8: No, I don't have a militant attitude.
3: Do you have a martyr complex? (laughs)
8: No, I don't.
3: (laughs) Well, do you see that coming out of this, that you can be a hero uh, in the civil rights movement?
8: I do not have that kind of complex. I don't like all of the attention that I'm getting. I don't, I, I would not, even if I like the attention, I would not lie to get attention.
7: Thomas adamantly insisted the accusations were not true. I've never been accused of sex harassment, and anybody who knows me knows I am adamantly opposed to that. Adamantly. And yet I sit here accused, and I'll never be able to get my name back. I know it. The day I received the phone call on Saturday night, last Saturday night, about 7.30, and told that this was going to be in the press, I had to, I died. The person you knew, whether you voted for me or against me. He choked back tears as he complained that he, his family, his friends, and the country had been irreparably harmed. My view is that that is an injustice. And if by going through this, uh, another nominee in the future or another American, won't have to go through it, then so be it. In the end, Republicans on the panel delivered impassioned defenses of the Supreme Court nominee, Wyoming's Alan Simpson, confronting Hill directly. Maybe, maybe, it seems to me you didn't really intend to kill him, but you might have. And that's pretty heavy. I don't care if you're a man or a woman. Kind of a singular a singular torpedo blow below the waterline and he sinks. Within five days, Thomas was confirmed by a narrow Senate majority of 52 to 48. Today, Washington Democrat Patty Murray is warning Republicans against a rush to confirm Brett Kavanaugh.
8: Women are watching We are not going to allow that to happen again. If Republicans attack Dr. Ford, and this turns into anything like what we saw back in 1991, women across the country are going to rise up, make their voices heard, and Republicans will pay a very huge price.
7: Tom Pym. A lot of people will be watching in just a few minutes.
0: Just extraordinary. And you you go back to Senator Heflin there, who uh, was before Jeff Sessions for Alabama, a Silver Star uh, guy, huge Marine track record in World War II. And what I went to, Bob, within your wonderful history there, is Heflin was born in 1921. Mm -hmm. And here we are almost 100 years ahead of that. The generational shifts here in this debate have been cultural and generational Mm -hmm. have been extraordinary.
7: Yeah, Uh, and you you have to consider that this was just 27 years ago. That's Mm -hmm. not all that long ago, really.
3: And also, is it worth noting that
7: the process has now become a political process, not a legal or judicial process? I I think it all began with with that hearing, where where it, it turned political and has become increasingly political with each confirmation.
0: What was your insight from digging up all of this audio? I mean, you go back and, folks, for for those of us in the Bloomberg newsroom, uh, Bob Moon sits in a coveted cubicle with <laughs> acres of video and in audio reels. What was it like to go through it all? What What was your take on going through uh, hours? I think the
7: overwhelming take is that, uh, how much times change just in that twenty seven years. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of this I don't think would fly today you know, that uh, that was going on back then, particularly with the Me Too movement. You no, know, Bob Moon, thank you so much. Just extraordinary. We'll be sure to get that out on Bloomberg
0: uh, Digital. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen.